Darkcast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Hi there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Today's case contains graphic details of murder, sexual assault, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. Being young can come with so many burdens, so many unknowns, and a lot of pain. It's easy when you're young to imagine picking up stakes, running away somewhere you think is exotic, like the city or even cross-country. You get caught up in the pain of being young, and sometimes you forget that there are people around you who love you who know just how much you matter. Being young means you have so much freedom to grow up to become the person you're meant to be. But what happens if you never grow up? What happens if you never get to learn from your mistakes, to move past the pain of youth? Today, we will discuss two cases of young teens who never got to grow up. Both remained as unidentified descendants, with only one of the teens being identified at this time. We will be discussing the case of the Canaan Jane Doe from Vermont and the Jenkins County Jane Doe from Georgia. Both teens would be murdered in 1988, and both young women never received justice for their murders. On May 15th of 1988, a small town on the border of northern Vermont and Canada would be shaken with the discovery of a very young woman who would never get to grow up to adulthood. She would remain unknown for over 10 years a young Jane Doe who never got to have her story told. Until now, that is. On February 14th of 1988, the small town of Millen, Georgia, would be rocked by the discovery of a young teenage girl who was brutally murdered, her remains bound and discarded within a dumpster for several days before her body was discovered. She remains unknown to this day, but she has not forgotten. And with that, nerdlings... It's time for us to leave the light, hop into that old car of ours, and drive from Canaan, Vermont, down to Millen, Georgia, to discuss these two cases of unidentified female victims. Spring is the season of rebirth in a state like Vermont. Darkness and cold penetrates the very bones of the state for nearly six months. And then, like a phoenix rising through the ashes, spring begins to awaken the world around her. The trees begin to bud with tiny furry seedlings, just ready to hatch out into their limbs. The daffodils begin to nod their approval as they bust through the winter-hardened soil. And the lilacs spritz their perfume across the wind and a tantalizing scent that can only be associated with spring. With the awakening of spring, the folks in Vermont begin to wake from their winter slumber as well. Ski boots and poles get tucked neatly into the garage for next year. Winter tires get taken off vehicles, and jackets and snow pants get boxed away and stored in the attic for another season. It was on a warm spring Sunday in May of 1988 when a local fisherman ventured out to explore the waters of Leech Creek River in Canaan, Vermont. He had his fishing pole in hand and was out enjoying the spring reprieve that had infiltrated the state. Canaan is located on the top part of the state. It shares a border with Canada, and is just a stone's throw away from the province of Quebec. The influence of Canada on the town is prevalent, as over 20% of the town speaks French as their primary language. 
The fishermen must have drawn close to the ravine that was off of Route 114, more than likely looking to cast his pole into a good location to catch fish for the day. Unfortunately, it wasn't a fish that he had located that spring in May. He spotted the skull of a human body that lay in the ravine and looked to have been there for some time. The fishermen reached out to the local police, and authorities were called onto the scene of where the remains lay in that ravine off of Route 114, so close to the Canadian border. Forensic anthropologists were brought onto the crime scene, and a painful exhumation began to take place. Each layer of soil removed uncovered small piece after piece of the young woman's remains. They were never able to fully obtain all the pieces to the skeletal remains, but they had enough to involve the medical examiner to try and get an estimate on just who the remains may have belonged to in life. Investigators brought the remains to the chief medical examiner, and it was determined that they belonged to that of a female, possibly in the age ranges of 16 to 22 years old. In examining the skeletal remains that once belonged to a living, breathing woman, the medical examiner determined that the unknown woman was of Caucasian descent. She would have stood around 5 foot 2 inches tall, and more than likely had a pronounced overbite. The medical examiner also determined that the remains had been in the element for quite some time, with her death ranging from 1982 to 1987. She had lain forgotten in the ravine for anywhere from three to five years' time. The medical examiner also found damage to the woman's skull that looked to have been from a heavy blunt object that was yet to be uncovered. Investigators armed with the knowledge of how she had died ruled the young unknown woman's death as a homicide. Experts believed that the unidentified woman was killed in the warmer months when the area around the pond would have been littered with people. In order to help determine the identity of the young woman, investigators went to every length to find the woman's name. They tried dental records to no avail. They reached out to the Canadian Mounted Police, but had no leads. They checked for any missing woman from the area during those years, but saw nothing. And authorities even sent the skull pieces and hair to the FBI labs in hopes to gain some clues as to her identity. But unfortunately, they received none. In all their searching to find the identity of the unknown woman, investigators were able to obtain a forensic facial reconstruction. The reconstructions that are done help to give people a better glimpse into who the unknown victims were in life. Reconstructions help to allow folks to connect with the victims more and to put a face with them even if they don't know their name. Unfortunately for the unknown woman who was only known as the Canaan Jane Doe, she would remain nameless for the next nine years she may have been nameless, but she was never forgotten. Detective Sergeant Roland Prairie was on the scene as the young woman's remains were painstakingly removed from the ground that had held them prisoner for several years. Detective Sergeant Prairie never forgot the young woman whose remains he helped uncover. Other cases came and went, and yet the Canaan Jane Doe remained, unsolved and unknown during that whole time. In an interview from 1997, Detective Sergeant Prairie is quoted as stating, quote, The case was on my mind all the time. This was somebody's kid. Somebody out there knows who did this, unquote. He always hoped for a break in the case, one small piece of the puzzle that would fit into place and give a name to the woman found all those years ago. In 1997, his hopes were answered 
when a break finally came in the case. After nine years of waiting and wondering just who the woman found in the ravine in Canaan, Vermont was, her remains were finally identified as Chantelle Surrier, a 16-year-old teen who never was able to grow up. The break came when Vermont State Police Sergeant Roland Prairie began talking with authorities in Canada as they combed through missing person cases in hopes of finding the one case that stood out as possibly being that of the woman left murdered in a ravine in Vermont. One case stood out to them, which was that of Montreal teen Chantelle Surrier, who had been missing since May 19th of 1987. In September, Montreal's investigator, Noel Bodak, gave Detective Sergeant Prairie Chantelle's dental records for the missing Montreal teen, and the dental records were sent to the Vermont medical examiner. After nine years, the Canaan Jane Doe would gain her name back. Chantelle was a teenager who had struggled in her life. She had lost her mother at a young age and lived on and off the streets of St. Catherine Street in Montreal after she ended up running away from her home. Chantelle had been living in the Mason Notre Dame Youth Detention Center, a home for teams that upheld rules and regulations in hopes of helping the teens get into normal routines. Chantelle was said to have wanted to run away from the detention center as she had wanted to live on her own somewhere in the city of Montreal. In May of 1987, Chantelle had gone on a group outing with some of the other youths at the center. This was the moment she had a chance to break free, and so she took it. A friend who was interviewed by a reporter but did not disclose her name was quoted as saying, quote, the last time I was with her before she ran, she was all nervous, paranoid, a package of nerves, unquote. Chantelle's police records in Canada states that she was a drug user and an alcoholic, a broad label used so readily to dismiss a 16-year-old missing girl. The anonymous friend of Chantelle's that the reporter interviewed had stated, quote, we'd find some rich man with a warm bed, unquote. Like other people who find themselves in Chantelle's situation, she turned to drugs and sex work to survive. At 16 years old, Chantelle had begun to run with a motorcycle gang and drug cartel. She was thought to have been their drug mule and would take the drugs across border lines and bring the drugs to other members of the cartel. Vermont is a state that is a prime place to smuggle drugs in and out of the country as the state touches the Canadian border, New York, New Hampshire, and Connecticut. It makes it a prime hub for drug cartels to lure people in and to become their drug runners. It would be one year later after Chantel's remains would be found by the fishermen in the ravine in Canaan, Vermont, that small French-American town that lay right over the border lines. It turned out that the remains had not been there for three to five years, but in fact, it had just barely been one. Nine years later, Chantel's name would be reconnected with her, and the Canaan Jane Doe would be a doe no longer. She was Chantel Surrier, a 16-year-old girl whose murderer remains at large, so her case is not closed, and her killer needs to be found and brought to justice for beating Chantelle Surrier to death. One thing we feel is very important to state is that it does not matter that Chantelle had fallen into the drug world and became a sex worker. Those things do not diminish her case or make her less important. The Canaan Jane Doe was a young girl who never got to grow up, a young girl who only wanted to be free and to find her path in this world. Her name was Chantelle Surrier, and she mattered.
Chantal Sorier was not the only girl to lose her life in 1988. Another young woman would also find her light extinguished by a still unknown killer. Her identity also remains unknown. Unlike Chantel, she has never been able to be given back her name. She is only able to be referred to as the Jenkins County Jane Doe, a young woman found murdered and naked in Millen, Georgia on Valentine's Day of 1988. On February 14, 1988, a gruesome discovery would be found when a man and his girlfriend were digging through dumpsters looking for cans to sell for money near Kaiser Road and Old Perkins Road in Millen, Georgia. The gentleman was sorting through the dumpsters while his girlfriend stayed in their car, waiting for him to collect the cans so they could continue on their way. Upon nearing the dumpster, the gentleman was hit with the smell of decay and death. He would open the dumpster and discover the bound remains of what looked to be a young woman. He would go back to his vehicle and tell his girlfriend of the discovery. They would both agree to tell a friend of theirs about the discovery first before alerting authorities. The couple would go and get their friend and bring them back to the site of where they found the remains. Once they brought their friend to the scene of the crime, then they would alert authorities to the discovery of the young woman's remains. They would go on to tell authorities that they saw a, quote, small brown vehicle at the location when they discovered the remains. It's unknown why the couple chose to get their friend involved first before alerting authorities to the remains in the dumpster. Once authorities were alerted to the crime scene, they were able to secure the site. When authorities got to the scene, they found the young woman lying deceased and decomposing in the bottom of the dumpster. Her body had been wrapped in plastic, her feet bound together, and then her remains placed inside a large duffel bag. Her body looked to have been put into the dumpster at least a week previously to the discovery of her remains. At least one other witness reported that they had smelled the stench of something decaying near the dumpsters, but were unaware of the remains lying in the garbage. Two children stated that they had seen a middle-aged couple at the site on February 12th. The children also reported a similar brown vehicle there that day. They stated that the couple threw something into the dumpster, but they weren't sure what, they did hear one of the people wail the words, quote, my baby. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, also known as GBI, was brought in and the investigators with them took the dumpster to GBI offices for testing. Once there, they found that her body lay with a pillow and some bedding that was possibly of oriental make. They also would send the unknown woman's remains to the ME for an autopsy. The autopsy would find no physical signs of trauma to the woman's remains, and determined that her cause of death was more than likely asphyxiation. The autopsy would also show that there were no drugs in the woman's system, and she looked to have been in a relatively healthy state before her murder occurred. Due to the heavy decomposition that had occurred to the young woman's remains, her ethnicity and race initially was thought to be that of Hispanic origin. Later, tests would determine that it looked like she may have actually been of East Asian descent, or possibly even Native American. There were very few leads in regards to the identity of the Jenkins County Jane Doe at the time of her murder. Her body had been found nude, and a search of the area and the dumpster yielded no evidence as just who she may be. Her case would grow cold before it ever really began. There were no suspects in her murder, no evidence as to who she was. Even her age range was unknown. It was estimated she was anywhere from 16 to 25 years old. 
authorities decided to have a reconstruction drawing done of her in 1988 in order to try and get a possible identification or lead in her case. The original reconstruction got a few hits, but nothing ever really panned out into her identity. One thing investigators were able to get off the victim's remains was her fingerprints, along with her dental records. Unfortunately, it was 1988, and so DNA testing was not a tool that could be utilized yet. A few days after her remains had been found, a tip was called into authorities, claiming that the killer of the unidentified victim was that of a man named Johnny Young. Investigators would bring Young in for questioning as his arrival in town did coincide to be around the time of the Jane Doe's death. Young arrived in Millen on February 9th. The young girl was found deceased on February 14th. The tip about Young was called in on February 17th. When interrogated, Young would tell investigators that his uncle was responsible and implicate him. He would deny any involvement with the woman's murder. He would also not give investigators any clues as to her identity. A woman who had known Young would supposedly call in a tip and tell investigators that Young had previously been associated with a Puerto Rican woman who had disappeared out of Young's life around that time. She was worried that Jane Doe may have actually been this woman, but did not know her name. Later on, the woman would recant her story, and so the tip would lead nowhere. In 1991, a man thought to be Johnny Young supposedly called investigators and confessed to the murder of the unknown woman. When police would go to Johnny Young once more, he would then recant his confession and again implicate his uncle. Johnny Young's uncle denied any part of the murder of the unknown woman. Young's uncle would say that Johnny was involved with drug trafficking and state that he himself had no involvement with the murder. Johnny Young was never tried for the murder and he would inevitably pass away, taking any possible knowledge of the crime and the identity of the Jenkins County Jane Doe with him to his grave. Years would begin to tick by, and still no identity was ever matched with that of the young Jane Doe or her killers. Theories ranged from the victim being that of an undocumented migrant worker who may have been working in that area at that time of her murder to her possibly being a victim of human trafficking. It was thought she could be a potential victim of serial killers such as Larry Dwayne Hall, Keith Hunter Jesperson, or even Samuel Little, but these theories are not considered likely. The Jenkins County Jane Doe's remains were cremated at some point after her body was found. Investigators did not obtain any DNA from her body before cremating her. In recent years, a new reconstruction of her was done, this one showed her to be of Asian descent and may resemble the young woman closer than the original reconstruction done in 1988. It has been over 30 years and the Jenkins County Jane Doe remains unidentified. This is another instance of a possible teenage girl who had her life taken from her before she ever had the chance to grow up into adulthood. Her case remains unsolved to this day and we can only hope that maybe with modern science, DNA could one day be extracted from her cremated remains, or perhaps investigators could take a second look at the evidence found within that dumpster on Valentine's Day in 1988. And with that, nerdlings, we conclude this chapter in the case of Chantal Sorier, formerly known as the Canaan Jane Doe, as well as conclude the case of the Jenkins County Jane Doe, two young girls who we hope will one day find justice 
and their families can gain some form of closure. And if you like this episode or any of our others, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. You can check out crimetimenerds.com for connecting with us via our socials and for other show updates. We will catch you next time, you crime-loving nerdlings.